The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. Thank you for coming and uh, good to see all of you. I'm excited about tonight's study. We continue to make progress in Romans, so let's open in prayer and, and dig in. Father, thank you for this evening and the chance we have to look at uh, the depths of your word. Um, we thank you for the book of Romans. Uh, there's no deeper and more helpful book in the Bible than Romans. So I pray that you would give me special grace uh, to guide us through. But this format is also a Q&A format. So just give my brothers and sisters here tonight um, just good insights, uh, good answers, good questions that they would ask so that uh, just the text can unfold for all of us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we are finishing up, God willing, uh, Romans 5 tonight and then moving on into 6. Uh, the beginning of 6 won't get very far in it. Um, but uh, tell you what, let me give the review. And I've given you guys a summary or review of Romans in, in the last couple of pages of your handout. So you can turn there or just listen as we continue to go through it. And I think foundational to just good teaching um, is, is repetition. So that after a while, it's like you could, you could do it. Um, I remember doing this in other books. Uh, outline of Hebrews is still emblazoned in my mind. Uh, uh, superior mediator gives us a superior covenant resulting in a superior life. That's a good three-part outline of the whole book of Hebrews. I remember uh, Gospel of John had that thing blazing in my mind. You got the, pre, uh, the prologue and then Jesus' public ministry, Jesus' private ministry and crucifixion, resurrection. Four-part outline of the Gospel of John and the purpose statement you hear basically every week when I preach in the Gospel of Mark. You know, these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, believing have, may, may have life in his name. That's John's Gospel. So I hope that the same will happen with you with Romans, that you'll have a sense of what the whole book is about as we walk through it. So uh, we begin always in Romans 1.16, the summary uh, of uh, the book of Romans. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. So this gospel message, a body of doctrines, of truths that we assert about God and about humanity, about Christ, um, these things have uh, power to save us. Um, now the word salvation is then unfolded for us in Romans uh, 1.18 through 3.20. Uh, where it gives just a very clear explication of what sin is and who is a sinner. And so it just walks through uh, in a very powerful way um, the fact that every single person on earth needs the salvation that's described in the book of Romans. We all need it. And salvation from what? Salvation is from sin and the condemnation, just condemnation that comes from it. So at the end of Romans 1, it's one of the clearest sinless uh, there, Romans 1, uh, the very end, it says they become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless, although they knew, know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. So that's a very extensive sin list there and gives us a sense of what sin is. And then in Romans 2, it goes through uh, moralistic people who have a standard that they espouse and they use to judge other people, but they don't live up to it themselves. First half of the chapter, scholars generally see as kind of righteous, so to speak, pagans or moralistic pagans like philosopher types, you know, Plato and Aristotle, those types that try to lead moral lives, but they don't really. Their consciences sometimes accuse, sometimes defend them. They don't lead consistent lives. And then especially in the second half of the chapter, there's no doubt it's talking about Jewish people who think that because they're Jewish, they don't need a savior. Because they have the law, they don't need a savior. Because they have circumcision, they don't need a savior. And Paul says, yeah, you have the law. Do you keep it? You know, do you keep it? So you're actually condemned by the law as lawbreakers. It's not those who hear the law that are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. And you don't obey the law. So that's what he's saying. So Romans 2, everybody needs 
uh, uh, savior, even if you're a moralistic, so-called righteous person. And then the whole thing summarized beautifully in the first part of Romans 3 as well. So he says, we've already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. Everybody's under sin, under the domination of sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Then uh, he gives us the glowing heart of the gospel, Romans 3, 21 through 25. But now a righteousness from God apart from law has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Him as a propitiation, a sacrifice of atonement through faith in His blood. Romans 3, 21 through 26, really the glowing heart of the gospel. Propitiation or sacrifice, removal of God's wrath by the payment of a blood sacrifice, that's Jesus. And through faith in the blood of Jesus are we justified. We are forgiven of our sins. So that's that's the center of the gospel. Justification is God's declaration of not guilty over anyone who has received the gift of righteousness through Jesus Christ. And justification is through faith in Christ alone, apart from works of the law, as 3.28 says. We maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from observing the law. It's not by obedience to the law that we are made righteous in God's sight. All right. And then in Romans 4, it gives us the example of Abraham. What shall we say that Abraham discovered in this matter? If in fact Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Credited, reckoned, accounted to him as righteousness. That's justification by faith. So Abraham, the first, the, the father of the Jewish nation, was justified by faith, not by works. David, the most significant Jewish person after that, uh, the king, the righteous king, so to speak, of the Jews, wrote many of the Psalms, testified to the same uh, in Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the, uh, is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against him. That blessedness is justification righteousness. It's forgiveness of sins just by the grace of God. And so both Abraham and David, and in fact all uh, the Old Testament saints, so to speak, were justified by faith, not by works. All right, it's not a new way of being saved here. That's uh, Romans chapter uh, 4. Then uh, assurance of salvation, we have that beautiful uh, unbreakable chain, the blessings, the treasure trove of, of benefits that we get from justification. Since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We rejoice in our sufferings, and we can reason out that in that while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. How much more now that we've been reconciled will we be saved from Christ, uh, uh, by Christ's life? So a uh, full salvation assurance is definitely coming to us. That's Romans 5, 1 through 11. And then last number of weeks, we've been working on the doctrine of original sin, Adam and Christ through Romans 5, 12 through 21. So that's where we're at. So look at the beginning. Um, and uh, if somebody could read uh, the text one last time. Uh, which is 12 through 17, and then somebody else, 17 up through 6, 4. So basically half and then half. It's on the front of your handout um, today. So somebody read the first half, and then somebody else the second half. Death reigned through that one man, 
how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Very good. Somebody else, 18 through 6 4. 5 18 through 6 4. Consequently, just as the result of one trespass was condemnation for all men, so also the result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. For just as through the disobedience of the one man the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man the many were made righteous. The law was added so the trespass might increase, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more, so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We die to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Fantastic. All right. So that's the text. Um, basically where we're at as we make uh, progress through Romans. Um, we've more or less done what we need to do with the Adam and Christ parallel, compare and contrast, but we'll finish up a little of that detail. But then there's two significant verses at the end of Romans 5 that are, are well worth our full attention. The law was added so that the trespass might increase, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more, so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Incredibly important statements. And then we begin a whole new section in Romans, Romans 6 through 8. Those three chapters are the centerpiece of the doctrine of sanctification, of progressive growth into Christ-likeness. That's, that's where we live. In terms of that internal journey of holiness, growth in Christ-likeness, Romans 6, 7, and 8 are the most important chapters in, in the Bible. So we're going to understand that, um, begin to understand it tonight. So that's what's in front of us. So let's uh, do a little review and overview. Paul's goals in this section in Romans. Uh, minor point would be how did sin and death come to be so universal? You know, the Bible is very realistic about that. The Bible realistically explains why the world is so messed up. And so Romans uh, 5, the doctrine of original sin, is important for understanding that. The major point here, Paul's purpose in writing Romans is to explain the gospel, right? The centerpiece of the gospel is justification by faith alone. Justification, forgiveness of sins by faith and not by works is hard to understand. It's counterintuitive. It doesn't make a lot of sense and it raises questions in people's minds. It doesn't seem to line up with reality. We generally want to get ourselves out of the problems uh, that we made for ourselves. We want to earn our way out of it. We got ourselves into it. We want to work our way out of it. That's the nature uh, all over the world. That's what all the religions are. They're religions of works. Five pillars of Islam, that's a bunch of works. I mean, that's what it is. And so fundamentally then, the idea that you can be forgiven, just declared not guilty of all of your sins just seems counterintuitive, it's difficult to accept. And so he wants us to understand that based on the doctrine of original sin and the doctrine of Adam and the federal headship of Adam. So uh, he wants to compare Adam and Christ so that we can understand the gospel. Continuing on though to the end of Romans 5, we need to understand that the grace of God in Christ is infinitely greater than our sin, much greater than our sin. Paul wants us to end up at the end of Romans 5 completely assured, confident that God's grace is vastly greater than our sin so that we don't make too much of our sin, right? Instead, we make much of Christ and realize that the blood that Christ shed is infinitely sufficient for our sins. He wants to give us that sense of assurance, all right? But <laughs> as soon as he does that, there's going to be another problem. Once we've got all that confidence, oh, okay, you know, then my sin's not that big a deal, right? Wrong. And so from Romans 6 to 8, he's going to say, hey, we still have to deal with the problem of sin in the Christian's life. And so that's what he's going to address. So that's, those are some of Paul's goals. 
uh, to summarize what we've learned so far in Romans 5, the obedience of Christ is parallel but vastly superior to the disobedience of Adam. 5.14 says that Adam is a pattern or a type of the one to come. All right, the one to come is definitely Christ. So Adam is a pattern of Christ. There are significant similarities between Adam and Christ. That's what he's saying. They're, they're similar, similar. The obedience of Christ is parallel, but vastly more significant than the disobedience of Adam. Uh, second point, the righteousness imputed to those who are in Christ is parallel, but vastly superior to the sin imputed to those who are in Adam because of his disobedience. And then next, the life that comes to us who are in Christ through that imputed righteousness is parallel, but vastly superior to the death that comes to those who are in Adam through that imputed sin. So that's, that's what we've seen up to this point. Any questions or comments? It's all review. All review. All right, so Adam and Christ compared and contrasted. We've done that. Christ's grace is infinitely greater than our sin, but Christ's grace be, uh, battles our sin day by day. So we've got this uh, pattern of Adam is the type of the one to come. And then the summary, verse 18, 19, just as the result of one trespass, that is by Adam, was condemnation for all men, so also the result of one act of righteousness by Christ was justification that brings life for all men. And then again, verse 19, for just as through the disobedience of the one man, Adam, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, Christ, the many were made righteous. It's not hard to see compare there or contrast. It's just so clearly right there. That's what Paul is doing here. But the key difference, the contrast, the gift is not like the trespass. What's the difference? Christ's effect on those uh, in him is abundantly superior to Adam's effect on those in him. Again, this how much more language. So Jesus did not come simply to return us to ground zero, back at the Garden of Eden where Adam was before he sinned. He takes us infinitely beyond that. Why he teaches this at this point? Uh, because justification is hard to understand. He wants us to understand it. We have a tendency to revert to works. We must see how superior Christ is and what a great salvation we have in him. Now, Paul's going to expand on the how much more sense of the superiority of Christ to show that his work on the cross is abundantly sufficient to handle all the sins exposed by the law. That's the how much more thing, all right? So in other words, what Christ did at the cross is vastly greater than all the sins the law has drawn out of us. That's what he's saying. It's just a much bigger impact in the world um, than all the sin that the law drew out. The, the grace of God in Christ is an infinite ocean able to swallow up all of our sins in God's goodness, kindness, and love. The law cannot save us, but it exposes our abundant need for salvation. That exposure is so pervasive and so comprehensive that we can begin to drown in discouragement at how sinful we are. Paul wants to give justified Christians full assurance of the infinite measure of God's grace in Christ. We can never sin our way out of that grace, no matter how much we sin. But then, Paul has to address the opposite tendency we have to throw off all restraint and sin more and more. So he begins to address the next stage of our salvation, we go from justification then to the next stage, sanctification, and ultimately glorification. That's where we're headed in Romans. Does that make sense? All right, now we're going to see all those cues on your sheet there? That's where you guys come in. All right, you've all just been coasting since you got in here. Relaxed, all right? No work to do, but now it's your turn. All right, so the crickets you hear will be me waiting for someone clever or someone sharp to answer. Romans 5, 18 and 19. Consequently, just as the result of one trespass was condemnation for all men, so also the result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. Verse 19. For just as through the disobedience of the one man the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man the many were being made righteous. So you've heard it three times tonight. All right, question. How does verse 18 summarize Paul's comparison between Adam and Christ? So look at verse 18. How do you... How does that kind of summarize what we've been doing up to this point? 
just as the result of one trespass was condemnation for all men, so also the result of one act of righteousness was justification. How does that summarize this comparison between Adam and Christ? Okay. Okay. One man, one act. Absolutely. Beautiful. Let's go on. What is the one act of righteousness for Christ that Paul has in mind? Seems that way. Seems that way. Well, then it does beg the question, is there any other righteousness in Christ's life other than his death on the cross? So, Philip, what do you think about that? Is there, I mean, talk about the whole package of righteousness. What are your thoughts? What's that one act in, in uh-huh. Christ? But um, I mean, without deep study on it, it would seem like the, the cross is the one act as a culmination of a life. Okay, beautiful. As a culmination. So full obedience against his obedience. Full obedience. And, and how, how would you say that, that, that Christ's righteousness is displayed in his whole life? I mean, how is, how is the, the, the cross a culmination of a whole pattern for Jesus? Well, let's just go back to he set aside Godhead, right? He set, he set aside his position to assume this lowly position and live a life of obedience culminating in this vicious death. All right, so here's the deep question now. Did the pre-incarnate Christ obey his Father in becoming incarnate? Yes. Because the Father sent him. Mm-hmm. So he's already acting submissively to the Father before he ever entered the world. This is a deep debate that's gone on about the eternal subordination of the Son. But we have to acknowledge, by yielding to the Father's will, he did that pre-incarnate. To decide to enter there, he's going to say, he who sent me, I was sent from the Father. The Father sent me. So that sent language is even before he took on a body. He did it as an act of obedience. Then once he starts living, now Leroy and I, we just talked about the baptism, right? You remember that we just had this conversation. So Leroy, what, what is the whole righteousness thing? Remember, he goes one day, he hasn't done anything yet. No miracles, nothing. He's just part of the crowd, talking about Jesus. He's not famous. He's just Jesus. Now, he's about 30 years old, Luke tells us. And he shows up one day at John the Baptist's baptizing place. Right? So what happened, Leroy? Uh, the Holy Spirit comes, came down, and up, up on him. Uh-huh. Uh, and God said, this is my beloved son. Yeah. So he's marked out. But before all that, he presents himself to John to be baptized by him. And John is like, John knows who he is, right? And what, is he, what happens at that moment, Leroy? When, he, when Jesus is there, I'm here to be, here, I don't know you said, I'm here to be baptized, but he's there to be baptized. What did John, John do? It is necessary for us to fulfill all righteousness. That's the beginning of his public ministry. So righteousness was on Jesus' mind from the very start. He got baptized in order to fulfill all righteousness. And how important was righteousness going forward at that point? Like the next day, or five days later, or six months in. Every day of his life was about righteousness. What is that? All the way to that. So I love what you said. Culmination of a perfect life of righteousness. And yet Paul uses this one act language here. One act of righteousness. But as a consummation of a whole life of righteousness. A complete... Now what does that mean? Righteousness. It's an important word. What is righteousness? A right relationship. See, you did the same thing I did when Leroy and I were talking. It's like, I can't define it without using the word itself. Righteousness is what's right. (laughs) So 
I think it just lines up with God. It just lines up with what he wills and with what he is and what he has commanded. It just lines up with him like a plumb line or, or a level or something that it just shows that it's 90 degrees or it's horizontal or something like that. It just lines up with the truth. So Jesus at every moment was righteous. And in that way, it says God made him, all right, who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become what? the righteousness of God. Jesus' water baptism in the pattern of a sinner, in the pattern of a sinner, was the beginning of that identification, right? He was baptized like he was a sinner. Because, think about it this way, each of the individuals that came and presented themselves to John were there for what reason? Why were they being baptized? Forgiveness of sins. For the forgiveness of sins. And it says in Mark 1, or something like that, confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. Did Jesus do that? Yeah, no. Okay. <laughs> that didn't happen. Now, if you'd been 30, 40, 50 feet away, you would have thought he's like any other guy, right? He just like looked like anybody else. He was a carpenter from Nazareth. So he's there confessing his sins like all the rest of us. But he wasn't. And why not? That's an easy one, guys. I mean, I have hard questions in this. And why didn't he confess his sins before he was baptized by John? He didn't have any. But he was there in the appearance of sinful flesh, Romans 8 says, looking like a sinner, immersed in all this sin, but he was pure, perfectly righteous. So he's identifying with us as sinners. He got baptized like everyone else. But he wasn't like everyone else. And so in that, there's that righteousness. But it had that culmination. That's the significance of Gethsemane when he was willing to drink that cup, right? When the Father revealed the cup to him, right? The cup of his wrath. And Jesus is knocked to the ground and, and there's that implicit question from the Father to the Son, which is, it's been the same question all along, will you do it? Will you drink that cup? And why at Gethsemane? Because from that point on, the only way he's going to escape the 600 soldiers that were there to arrest him is by using his miraculous power. If he's going to do that, he's not even going to get to that point, right? So he, that's his last moment of freedom. His last moment of free will. At that moment, he has to decide, is he going to do it or not? He's at the fork in the road. He's deciding whether he'll drink the cup or not. And what was the decision? Not my will, but yours be done. That's that one act of obedience and then led right up to the cross. So that's what I think he means by one act of, of, of obedience. Um, uh, one act, sorry, one act of righteousness. Um, and through that one act of righteousness, so Adam's one trespass was eating the fruit, right? Could argue that his, his sin of omission preceded it, and I have argued that at other times, but let's just zero in on the eating the forbidden fruit. One trespass brought death for everyone. We all died in Adam. All right? And that brought condemnation for all men. So also, in the same way, one act of righteousness was the result was justification that brings life for all men. So Jesus' whole life of righteousness is what's imputed to us. Does that make sense? It isn't just that one moment, but it's the whole thing. So what does that mean then? When God sees us, what does he see then? Concerning this imputed righteousness, what does he see when he looks at a Christian? Perfect. Righteous. And, and would we say that's equal to obedience? He sees us as obedient, as obedient as Jesus. That's amazing. Because you're not. <laughs> I don't mean to be in off offensive. We'll get to that in sanctification. The goal of sanctification is to make you so increasingly, and the goal of glorification is to consummate that. So you will be as obedient as Jesus in heaven. But um, now you're not. Anyway, you're seen that way. And it says uh, it brings life for all men. So what, how does that work? How does Christ's one act of righteousness bring life for all. 
That's what it says in verse 18, brings life for all. Is it the correlation of uh, you know, Adam brought death through the uh, eating of the fruit, you know, the direct command of God, and so through Christ, the reverse of that, Absolutely. And uh, by, the, by the logic of Romans, it's a greater thing. The, the, deaths, the death that Adam brought was, was very impactful. It was a big deal. But the life that Christ gives is much more so. And why is that? Because it's eternal life. It's not just resuscitation. It's not, like, it's not even just like Jairus' daughter or Lazarus, any of that. Because they all died again. All right? That's, it's better than that. The life Jesus gives is better than the life he gave to Jairus' daughter or to the widow at Nain's son or to Lazarus. Why would I say that? It's better than that. Better than what Lazarus got in John 11. It's eternal. We, we will not, cannot die again. That's why it's better. So that's this, the logic here is it's a greater impact. Adam's death was temporary for us. It was impactful, but not as impactful as the life that Jesus comes to give because that's eternal life. That's the point he's making here. All right, now, how is Adam's disobedience contrasted with Christ's obedience? So we've already talked about this briefly. We don't have to belabor it. But why, why does Paul in verse 19 zero in on disobedience and obedience. That was the difference between the two. Okay. Any chance we might be underestimating the whole obedience thing when it comes to God? Any thoughts on that? That God really does expect that we would obey Him? <laughs> What are your thoughts on that, this whole topic of obedience? I think it more of a sense of God's view of disobedience. Um, when you're reading the Old Testament, mm -hmm. how people, you know, thinking, what are you talking about, Moses at co-op today? So, like, most humble man on the face of the earth, he's called God's friend, he disobeys God on Mount Nebo, and that's, you know, God says very, God takes it very seriously. That was it. And he actually tells him in Deuteronomy, don't talk to me about this anymore, because he circles back. He's like, is there any chance? Like, I know you're gracious. And I'm like, no, and don't ask. <laughs> We're done. Yeah, it didn't move the needle at all. <laughs> it's like, no, because you did not consider me, did not honor me in front of them and by obeying me. So it's a big deal. And in Ezekiel, he says, I'm sending you to a rebellious people, a disobedient people. He says it over and over in Ezekiel. It's more, more times literally I can count. I haven't gone through and count the number of times he calls them disobedient. They don't do what he tells them to do. And the re why is that important for us as Christians to read that? Because God, in sanctification, God's going to make you increasingly what? Obedient. That's where we're heading. That's what sanctification is. You're going to become like Christ more and more and more and more obedient. That could be a takeaway tonight. You should just ask, like, Holy Spirit is like, show you patterns of disobedience now. Sins of omission and commission. What are you doing now? Because that's, that's, that's a big deal. One act of disobedience by Adam brought the whole world into this misery. That's how big a deal this is. And then Paul zeroing in on that one act of obedience uh, saved us. So I think that's why he zeroes in on this act of this issue of obedience or disobedience. And it's really amazing because in justification, he declares you, I just said it a moment ago, obedient in Christ. In sanctification, he makes you actually obedient like Christ. That's, that's pretty important to know that. It's like increasing obedience, but you're already seen by God to be obedient. By the way, how does that help you? How does it help you that in justification you're seen as perfectly obedient, now in sanctification he wants you to be actually obedient? How do those two connect and help you? How does knowing that you're seen positionally be obedient help you actually be practically obedient later tonight? Absolutely. The connection between justification and sanctification is a very powerful connection. When you realize what God has declared you to be, it enables you to act like that more now. 
especially when you know that God's going to work in you at glorification to make you actually so in the end. So I think that's, there's, it's very, very helpful. Meditate, I am positionally obedient. And by the way, we're already doing it right now. In Romans 6, the first, actually Romans, the first command in the book of Romans, the first one, it's not even in the handout tonight, is count yourself dead to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus. That's the first command that Paul gives you in the book of Romans. Consider yourself a certain way. Think of yourself a certain way. Wow, it all starts with the thoughts. Think of yourself as dead to sin but alive to God and now live like it. That's, that's how it all starts. It's pretty powerful. We'll get to all that, um, but not tonight. Um, in what way are we made righteous through Christ's obedience? That's what he says. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the many, the many will be made righteous. What does that mean to you, that we are made righteous through Christ's obedience? Say again, I'm sorry. Righteousness was not your own. Okay. But now, in Christ, you are made actually righteous. Stephanie, did you say something? It's imputed to us. Right. So, yeah, so this is clear biblical evidence and other verses besides that God sees you or makes you actually righteous in his sight through justification. You are actually made righteous by faith in Christ. Uh, now, how, last question on this section. How would you answer someone that says this comparison teaches universalism since every single human being sinned in Adam, and so someone might say every single human being is saved in Christ? How would you re refute a charge of universalism based just on this verse? <coughs> it's righteousness is predicated by faith. Okay. So it's for all those who believe. Okay, good. I love it. Anyone else? Maybe that's all we need. Do you see how somebody might make a charge of universalism here? Like, how, what percentage of the human race was affected by the sin of Adam? 100%. 100%. sinned in Adam. I mean, obviously, Jesus is a special case. But, you know, other than, other than Jesus, everybody sinned in Adam because we're all considered, uh, you know, in him. That's where the universalism comes, right? Because it's like, well, then we're talking about the whole human race. No, the way you, the, the, the way you use the language here is those that Adam represented? Who did he represent? All his biological, physical progeny. Who did Christ represent? All of those that were given to him by the Father, all of the elect. And that's the, the language that we used. All right. Um, anyway, yeah, I think we've done that. All right. So summary, just as there was a spiritual union between Adam and, and all he represented, uh, and just as Adamson was imputed to all that he represented, so there's a spiritual union between Christ and all he represents, and, uh, and his righteousness is imputed or credited to us. Yeah, go ahead. Oh. On verse 18, before we leave, I don't, I don't want to derail you tonight because I know you'll get to it in Romans 9. But um, uh, verse 18, justification that brings life for all men. Mm -hmm. How does that square with limited atonement and two yeah, it'd be the same. I would, you know, because to me the problem with Arminianism always is that it, it's they're skating right to the edge of universalism. I don't know how they don't go over the edge, because they, you know, and they do it in in some ways. But that's the the problem I'm always having with semi-Pelagianism or Arminian theology is it's heading toward universalism. For me, I use the same language here as there. Those that Christ represented. Who did he represent? Who is he good shepherd for? Who did he, who does he intercede for? Who does he die for? He dies for the elect. It's not, it's not competing for me in the sense that Adam's sin applies to all. Right. Why does Christ's, uh, it's not universalism, but the availability. We're going to get mm -hmm. to the, the choice and, and, and yeah. he will interact with that later. But, but the, 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 you know, Christ is lifted up as a serpent on the pole. Right. And, and all that, uh, look would be healed, right? And, right. and, and so the, I'm just I'm at the edge of that, trying to understand. This says all, and limited atonement in Tulip says no. He only died for those that are ultimately believed. Yeah, but I'm just adding extra words here in Romans to avoid universalism, saying all those Christ represented, and then you find out from other verses who that is. Who does he represent? Right. It's kind of like um, a, a bowl of dirty water. You can take some water out and 
explain it and put it over here, but it, it, it's as you took it out of that and claimed it, you didn't just you just did clean it all and say everybody's got the same thing. Yeah. So in any case, the only way that I can refute a charge of universalism just on verse 19, 18 and 19 is to add the extra, in my mind, add the extra phrase, Adam, all those that Adam represented, namely in that case, the whole human race, and then all that Christ represented, who we understand from other scriptures, not just this one, but other scriptures that represents the elect, or you really are at universalism at that point. Say that without obedience, there, there is no righteousness. Without saving. you have to, to obey right. and to follow Christ. Yeah. To have righteousness. Yeah, sure. So you cannot be universal if you don't. Yeah, and and I, I think that there's clear there's clear biblical. Uh, you know, usually we use the verb believe. You believe the gospel, but there are some verses that you obey the gospel because the gospel has an implicit command: repent and believe. And we who are converted, we obey. So our obedience is essential to our salvation. It's yeah, I would agree. All right, let's keep going. The purpose of the law and the greater effect of the gospel. All right, the law was added. It's an interesting word, added. That's an NIV 84, brought in, comes in alongside. It's a very interesting Greek word. It's kind of came in alongside, or I don't know, in Galatians 2.4, it's a very negative sense. Uh, you know, the, the Judaizers snuck in like they crawled in from the window. It's the same Greek word. But, you know, there's a lot of debate on whether Paul's meaning something negative or he's just saying, look, it was just added. It was just brought in alongside. But it's odd that he would bring up law here, but, the, but that's what he does. So let's talk about it. The law was brought in alongside so that the trespass might increase. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, why do you think Paul even brings up the law here? We haven't been talking about the law. Um, we've just been talking about Adam and Christ. Um, so why do you think he brings in the law at this point? Such a big part of the history of sort of uh, Revelation 7, like the Jews had the law given to them. It's okay. a huge part of Judaism. Yep, very, very good, yeah. Very good, yeah. And it's already been mentioned a lot in Romans. I mean, multiple times. Uh, that we're not justified by the law, you know, that just because you have the law, it's not those who, you know, who have the law, but those who keep the law. I mean, so it's already been discussed, and we're definitely going to be talking about it more. So, yeah. When he's talking about Adam's sin, that was a breaking of God's law. Breaking of God's law. Very good. Yeah. Um, yeah. Even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam. So that's a law, you know. But where law, uh, where there is no law, there is no um, transgression, I think he says somewhere in here. So yeah, he's already been talking about even in this chapter. Now, law here means, yeah, go ahead, please. Well, I mean, in verse 18, it says trespass. Okay. Yeah. Very true. So Adam had a very simple law, basically one command. <laughs> yeah. um, lots of laws came in after that. The law that was added here probably we should see as the Old Covenant or the Mosaic Law, beginning with the Ten Commandments, but then expanded out to all of them, 600-plus commandments, circumcision, dietary regulations, all of that. That whole river of commands that came from God at Sinai and beyond, all of that was added. I think that's right to see the word law there that came in later. The law that was added later, that's the Mosaic law. All right, um, the rest of it. According to this passage, this is not the only purpose, but just nestled right here in 520, what was the purpose of the law? to make sin increase, to make the trespass increase, right? Um, so that the trespass might increase. What is the trespass that then has to increase? Well, we've been talking about one very famous sin. <laughs> you guys do know what it is, right? What, what is the, the trespass we've been discussing for the whole, the whole chapter here? Adam's sin. So the law was added so that original sin by Adam might 
what? Increase. Now, does that surprise you? I mean, I would hope it would. Please see the surprising. This doesn't seem something God would do. So why would God want the trespass to increase? We would think that the law comes in to make it decrease. We want less sin, etc. But that's not what happens. So why does he want the trespass to increase? Okay. All right. To magnify his own glory at the end of it. Okay. How much greater is sin? And then God's, God's glory is so much greater. Okay. So, you know, ultimately, I think that's a safe answer and a good answer. Everything God does is for his own glory. How, how much did it increase? Any sense of how big this whole sin thing got? Kind of putting a, a spotlight on the sin to increase the sin and show how sinful we are. Okay. And, and show how, how God's grace uh-huh. is bigger than any sin that we can bring up. Okay. It's just exposing how sinful we are. Very much so. So from that first eating of that piece of fruit until, let's say, this very day, like, let's say until you walked in here. We'll not start it from that point on. We'll say before you walked in here, worldwide. How big did this sin thing get? I mean, would you say it? I mean, I'm not trying to be facetious here, but do you think it went viral? Yeah, all the people that died since right. then. Everybody just gets one sin. That's yeah. still billions. Billions of sins. But we know that's not the case. So by the time, all right, here I've just traced out redemptive history. So after you get the fall of Adam, then the spread of sin. I mean, the next chapter, you got Cain and Abel. So eating a piece of fruit in chapter 3, and Cain's murdering his brother in chapter 4. And then in chapter 5, you got whatever that guy's name is that had two wives and killed some guy for insulting him. Um, huh? Lamech, yeah, he's a bad dude. Um, and then, you know, so that's just, it's a messed up chapter. And then, and then you got chapter six, which is the beginning of the whole flood narrative, where it says that the thoughts and intentions of men's hearts were only evil all the time. Continually. It's like all they ever did was evil. All right, then you got the flood, and then you just keep going. Uh, Call of Abraham, slavery of the Jews in Egypt. Yeah, Uh, yeah, I'll just trace out this, and then, Stephanie, don't forget your question, please. But I want to just trace this out. I'm learning from Ezekiel 27 and 8. You can look it up. They were really, the Jews were really bad in Egypt. They're bad people. Don't think of them as innocent victims in Egypt. They were not innocent victims. They were enslaved. They were harshly used, but they were straight idolaters, absolute Egyptian-level idolaters, and they never left it. I mean, it just keeps going. Ezekiel is lamenting. It's like you learned how to be spiritually promiscuous in Egypt, and you never stopped. I mean, that's what he's saying. It's really very tragic. And it's like, wow, I didn't realize it was that bad. Because it doesn't come across in Exodus. They really seem like innocent victims in Exodus, and God comes to deliver them. But you get the fuller story. And it, and it shouldn't surprise you, if you read the story of the Exodus, how would you describe the Jews' behavior? I mean, doesn't Paul talk about that? The ones that went through the Red Sea, most of them, what happened to them? Their bodies were scattered all over the desert. Why? Because they were so awesome? because they were disobedient idolaters. I mean, that golden calf, that's just, that was home base for them. It wasn't like some freak thing. It was like, that's who they were. I mean, why do you think that the, the Israelites had to paint the blood of the Passover lamb on, the house, on their houses? You know, what was the reason for that? If they didn't paint that blood, what was going to happen? The firstborn would die and would deserve to die. So that's clear indication of how sinful the Jewish people were in, in Egypt. So they're not pure, innocent victims or any of that. So at any rate, it just keeps going. Then you've got the 40 years of wandering the desert because of the sins of the people, the rebellion at the ten, with the 10 spies and all that. Then they finally cross over. You got the whole conquest. 
you know, under Joshua. And then you have the book of Judges. What do you guys think of that book? Yeah, you're all shaking your heads. I mean, it is, I think it's the most messed up book in the Bible. I mean, it gets worse as the chapters go on. It's just, yeah, even the best guy, Jephthah. Lord, whatever comes across the threshold to greet me, I'll offer as a burnt offering. Turns out to be his daughter. I mean, it's just odd. It's a strange book. But anyway, keep going. Then you've got the history of all of the kings and that cycle of evil that just keeps on going to the point where Manasseh is offering a son of David, a descendant of David, as a, as a burnt offering to Molech. I mean, how bad could it get? It's just really, really nasty. And the many warnings of the prophets that were not generally heeded at all. <coughs> and the exiles, say again, they killed them, persecuted them, etc. Then the exiles to Assyria and Babylon, the coming of Christ, all his suffering on earth, the crucifixion, his bloody death on the cross, resurrection, coming of the Holy Spirit. And it's been 2,000 years of wonderful church history ever since then. <laughs> Do you guys know anything about church history? Oh, what a mess. And we have the indwelling Holy Spirit. We have all these incredible Romans 5 promises, and we're so messed up. So here's the question. Why did God want all of that? And we read Revelation. It gets worse and worse and worse until the end. The man of sin, Antichrist, all that. It's just so bad. The question is, why did he want the trespass to increase? That's what I'm looking at. That's the whole history here. Now, you said for his own glory, but why does that glorify God to have all that come out? It's an incredibly big thing to save a sinner. How much more than to save a multitude greater than anyone could count from every tribe, language, people, and nation? How big a deal is that? But here's, a, a, I think, a more profound uh, issue. I think it goes to the core and the heart of it. What did Adam want when he ate that fruit? What was he seeking? I know, but, but how? To know good and evil. So he wanted an education in evil. We've gotten one. What do you guys think we'll think about evil when in heaven we remember it? And we will, because there's no point if we don't remember it in heaven. In heaven, when we get the whole 6,000 plus years of the history of evil, what will we think about evil when we're in heaven? Worse than we could possibly know, and we will hate it like God does. That's the point. You know, it says in Hebrews of Jesus, you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. We cannot hate what we don't know. But now that we know it, and when we have our glorified minds, we will hate it like he does, and that will be perfection. Does that make sense? The whole story then makes sense. So he uses the law to draw the poison out and give it dimensions and details so that we see it. Does that make sense? So you have 600 plus commands in the Old Covenant. You have a bunch of New Covenant commands. You guys have read the epistles. How many commands do you think there are in the epistles? Can you give me an example of a New Testament command? Do not lie to one another. Rejoice always. always, You know. Be holy as I am holy. holy. That's right. Do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. That's a New Testament command, right? Love one another. A new command I give you is, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for wives. Submit to your husbands. I mean, lots of New Testament commands. All right, that's law. Right? Isn't it? It's law. We don't think about it as law, though. It is. <laughs> well, what does the Great Commission say? All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded. That's law, friends. That's obedience. That's what we're supposed to do. That's part of sanctification. It's part of discipleship. It's part of what we're doing tonight. So the, the, the law is added so that the trespass might increase. We, are, we have far more significant and pervasive commands than the Jews did in the Old Covenant, in the New Testament. We do. 
if you, you know what to look for, you look at, at the epistles and what, how they probe our hearts and minds, it gets to a deeper level. Now, we're not under law, but we have all these things that are commanded of us as disciples of Jesus, right? And so fundamentally, I think the law draws out, draws out sin. Someone read Romans 7, 12, and 13. I think it, it gives some insights. The law is holy and the commandment is holy, righteous and good. Did that which is good then become death? I mean, by no means. But in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it produced death in me through what was good, so that through the commandment sin might become utterly sinful. Probably that last phrase is at least part of the answer. God wants by his actions here for sin to become utterly sinful to us, that we would see just how awful and bad it is. And I think most of us, so if, you, if you've been a Christian any length of time, I, I've, I've had this testimony so many times and I can say it myself. The greatest grief in my life is my own sin. The greatest sorrow is after all of these years of being discipled and following Christ, I am as disobedient as I still am. It's a sorrow to me, and, and I yearn to be free from it. That's why Paul called himself the chief of all sinners. He, he was very aware of the residual sin. We'll get to that in Romans 7, but he was still battling this sin problem. So I think that's, uh, he, you know, the law was added so that a trespass might increase. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more or abounded. Sometimes the word abounded. I like that. Where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. What is the significance of that statement? Without it, we're hopeless. Okay. So we got this, uh, this river of evils that the law has elicited, but grace abounds all the more. Any other thoughts on that? I would think it might be the most encouraging thing you've heard all day. <laughs> Maybe you've heard some other Christian teaching that's been more, but I find this an incredibly encouraging verse, Romans 5.20, where sinning abounds, grace abounds all the more. What does it teach you? What do you learn from that? Okay. Say it again. Amen. Your sin is significant. Amen. We all say that. Your sin is significant. Christ's death on the cross is more so. It's like, oh, you would definitely assent to that, wouldn't you? I sure hope you would. Christ's death on the cross is more significant than your sins. Imagine if you reversed it and made so much of your sin that say, I don't even think Jesus can be, in, I don't even think that's enough. Do you realize what a dishonor to Jesus that would be and how completely untrue it is? You know, he removed the sin of the land in a single day. That's the power of the blood of Jesus. So why is it helpful for us to meditate on the value of the blood of Christ compared to your sin? The value of the blood of Christ, infinitely greater than your sin. Why is that helpful to meditate on? So you don't despair. It's complete assurance. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I think it's so humbling too because like as we realize the magnitude of our sin and then we realize how much more his grace is, it mm -hmm. just I don't know, it just it puts it in perspective and it makes me magnify him more and more just for his goodness. Yeah. It is. So if you ever become conscious of sin in your life, you violated your conscience, the Holy Spirit convicts you. You know, Romans 5.20 is a good place to start along with 1 John 1.9. 1, 
you know, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. The blood of Jesus is infinitely sufficient to cover this. And if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So it, I think it starts there. It's very, very important to see uh, that Christ's grace is infinitely greater. How does the chapter end? What does it mean that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life? through Jesus Christ our Lord. We get this reigning language. What does that mean? Just as sin reigned in death. Where, where are you on the handout? Uh, I have no idea, but I'm in 521, Romans 521. <laughs> <laughs> My pagination is different than yours, so maybe five. Six. Okay. Just as sin reigned in death. I actually haven't even looked at my questions in a while. I'm just spinning them off out of my brain. But I'm the one that wrote them earlier today, so I figured it's about the same. Um, so sin reigned in death. How did sin reign in death? Okay. Yeah, just in general, in human, human I'm sorry. Yeah, that word reign is very, very interesting. I mean, in, in human society, who reigns? I mean, it's the same thing. What, what title do we give to the person that reigns? A king. Uh, if the king is particularly vicious and evil and uses power to destroy, we call that a tyrant. Was sin a tyrant? Absolutely. Sin was a dominating, unbreakable tyrant reigning in death. And there's nothing we could do to break that reign. Jesus, though, could. And he broke the reign of sin and death and brought in a new reign. So there's a new kingdom. There's a new sense of reigning. So also grace might reign through righteousness. So grace is reigning like a king. Grace is seated on a throne and powerful like sin and death used to be, but more so based on the logic of Romans 5. Much more powerful than death, sin and death used to be. That's the image here. Grace is reigning in your life. It's reigning in the world. It's reigning. But it says, through righteousness. What is the significance of that phrase? Grace is reigning through righteousness to bring eternal life. Yes, imputed righteousness. Would you say, would you extend it also to sanctification righteousness? You have to. It's all part of it, right? So there is a righteousness that's imputed and then worked out in us, and that brings eternal life. That's the essence of it. So he adds that phrase, through righteousness. He's working righteousness through imputed righteousness and then actual righteousness and sanctification. Grace is reigning through righteousness to bring about eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. All right, I'll give you these summary statements. We'll be done. We'll pick up um, Romans 6. That's a good place to break anyway. Although it's tragic that I did only two verses tonight. And this is the danger of Romans. This is always the danger. We have slowed down, all right? But that's what happens with Romans. Anyone who's ever preached it or taught it will tell you, yeah, that's what happens with Romans. But listen to these summary statements. John Piper. The ironic thing about the doctrine of original sin is that while being one of the hardest doctrines to accept, it helps explain most of what we see, namely the universality of evil. People who believe what the Bible teaches about this doctrine are not baffled about why history is strewn with corpses and why every society that has ever been has had to deal with the evil of its people. It's just so realistic and true, original sin. And then uh, Edwards, Jonathan Edwards on original sin. This doctrine teaches us to think no worse of, our, of others than of ourselves. It teaches that we are all, by nature, companions in a miserable, helpless condition, which, under a revelation of the divine mercy, tends to promote mutual compassion. Mutual compassion. And nothing has a greater tendency to promote those amiable dispositions of mercy, forbearance, long-suffering, gentleness, and forgiveness than a sense of our own extreme unworthiness and misery and the infinite need we have of a divine pity, forbearance, and forgiveness together with a hope of attaining mercy. So when you look at the unregenerate sinners around you, you should realize that you had a solidarity with them in Adam. 
and shouldn't be surprised that they, in their unregenerate state, are behaving like that. You should absolutely understand it because you were in that too with Adam. That's what uh, um, Edwards is saying. All right, so why don't we close in prayer? Father, thank you for tonight, chance to walk through Romans and to learn more of it, to um, have its teachings permeate our minds and our hearts. I pray that you would help us as we're about to venture into the teaching on sanctification, that we would not sin all the more that grace may increase, that we would consider ourselves united with Christ in his death and in his resurrection and live, walk in newness of life. I pray that you would help us to reckon or consider ourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus, that we would not present the members of our bodies to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather present ourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and present the members of our body to him as instruments of righteousness. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build his kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.